This is exactly right. Listen, we're all SVU fans. We love a family drama. We love a mystery to solve. And you got to get hooked into a story with the details. You need the visuals. You need the storylines with the twists and the turns. And that is what June's Journey has and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young girl on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murderer. Dun, 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 dun. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. The game is filled with all these beautiful detailed scenes from the 20s, like lavish estates and gardens. And of course, little hidden clues are everywhere. There's twists, turns, catchy tunes. It all takes you deep deeper into this storyline. And if you play well enough, you can make it into the detective club. And there you can chat with other players and even compete with or against them, which is pretty exciting. And you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. And can you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. Okay, love that. And guess what? It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! That's messed up an SVU podcast. We have another episode coming at you. My name is Lisa Traeger. And I'm Kara Clank. And as you very well know, we recap an episode of SVU. We talk about the true crime was based on, and we interview a fabulous guest. And today is no different. We have a great guest. And before that, we just like to catch up and chat and talk about what's going on in the world. Nothing good. Uh, yes. <laughs> no, no, that is that a couple good things, but yeah. mostly um cl- clouded in disasters that I disassociate from. Yeah. yeah. Are you in them? Are you in the no, disasters? No, like I was like literally on hysteria a few weeks ago and that was the whole topic is like how do you handle like the never ending doom cycle and I, they were like, "Kara, how do you?" and I was like, "Uh, <laughs> like I don't know. I I just I dip in, but then I, you know, I I get out. I I have to like focus on other stuff. I feel like I well, can't. Well, yeah. If we, if any of us actually focused on it, we could maybe um, sacrifice our comfort for one second to maybe put our asses on the line to make change. But we're not going to do it. So we're going to keep listening to this pod, and <laughs> that's that. So yeah, keep keep driving through the drive through and listening. <laughs> and no, no judgment here. I saw Scream last night. And oh, Scream Six. Yeah, I think my new thing in life is eating dinner at the movie theater and going to the movies. <laughs> I thought it was going to be going to Jumbo's Clown Room, but it's actually seeing horror movies and having a great, great time. And I'll tell you, one is going to save you a lot more money. I think dinner in <laughs> a movie is going to save you a lot more money. Well, no, not dinner in a movie, dinner at the movie. At the movie, yeah. Dinner at the movies. Yeah. V Jumbo's Clown Room. Especially, yes. if especially if you see somebody you like. Uh-oh. <laughs> I know. Someone made fun of me. They're like, it's not even a- an actual strip club. They're like, 
what's going to happen to you um, when you graduate. Um, but I was just uh, messaging with who I went to the movies with. And I was like, do you think people in line could tell we were stoned? And he was like, I think helicopters in Highland Park could tell. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I did have a good, um, yeah, Scream was okay. It was, it was fine. It was good. It was a good time. But- I went last year and saw Scream 5, but only because it was someone's birthday where they rented out the whole theater and it was like lie down seats. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, I don't know. I, the Scream movies, I never really... The, the first ones are awesome. I actually possibly still own the Scream 2 soundtrack on CD. But yeah, I used to like them at the very beginning and then I kind of like fell off and then I saw five. But I don't know if six is calling my name. But Nev Campbell, not in this one. Not in this one. They do reference that she decided to um, protect her family and it's like not get involved. When in real life, she was protecting her bank account. I feel like she was like upset that she wasn't getting paid enough, right? Oh, is that what it was? I think that's what it was. I think they were disrespecting her. Like she, like, I think she was like, I am this fucking franchise. And they were like, no. And they just didn't give her enough, I think. Well, yeah, there are a part where they're like, once it's a franchise, you actually don't matter and, like, legacy characters can die and, like, no one is safe is, like, part of the... Yeah. um, Kind of, you know, sass of this. But Hayden Panettiere, an SVU alum, she makes a an she's appearance. Oh. Yeah, she, she's an FBI agent. Kirby. Hell yeah. Yeah, and um, Dylan, Dylan McRooney... McDermott. I don't know. Dermot Mulrooney or Dylan McDermott? (laughs) Not Dylan McDermott. Dylan McRooney. Dermot Mulrooney. (laughs) You will not not call him Dylan. (laughs) It's the guy from Best Friends Wedding. Dermot Mulrooney. Yeah, but there's also another guy that looks like him that's not him. That is gay, but this guy is not gay, I feel. I mean, he Uh, could be, but, you know. Love is. I mean, there was like an SNL sketch that was called Dermot Mulroney or Dylan McDermott. (laughs) Yeah, but I know. But then there's a third guy too, who's in the twist. I feel from my best friend's wedding. No, just in the genre of faces of that of the man, not in the names. Oh, but it is my best friend's wedding guy. He is in it. Uh, Yeah. Wait, Yellow Jackets, too. Fuck Scream. We have Yellow Jackets coming up, baby. Oh, I did do something ethically, uh, like Karen, I think. Uh Uh-oh, what did you do? We went to a 9 or an 8.45. It was like towards the end of the evening. I had been looking forward all evening to the popcorn. Um... It wasn't fresh. So I said, will you pop a fresh batch? And they're like, it would be a 10 to 15 minute wait. And I said, I'll wait. I did end up tipping, but I did make them pop fresh popcorn at the end of the night. Listen, you tipped and you sounds like you asked nicely. I don't think that's very Karen-ish. You didn't ask to talk to a manager. You weren't like belittling someone. No, 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 I was pretty apologetic, but I was just like, I, I'm not eating gutter corn. Yeah, if you've been waiting all day and it tastes like styrofoam, fuck that. I get it. I wanted fresh corn. Fresh. Fresh corn Wait, grill, did baby. you see the ads for the new Little Caesars where the crust is a corn on the cob and it comes <laughs> with a liquid fuck? butter side? It's over. It's over. <laughs> Idiocracy <laughs> has become real life. But what I the did. fuck are you talking about? There's a corn... 
cob crust. <laughs> no, but wildly, I DM'd it to our friend Lauren, who's obsessed with corn. And she did not order that, but she goes, holy shit, I did just Postmates myself corn on the cob. Okay, so I just Googled it and it says, no, Little Caesars corn cob crust pizza isn't real. Oh, but okay, they- cool. <laughs> It didn't make sense. Like, I don't know how it could be a vehicle for crust, but <laughs> I believed it. I believed it. I believed it. So is that even more idiocracy? I mean, that's according to some website called penlive.com. I don't know if that's real. But then Boing Boing says, Little Caesars introduces corn crab crust pizza with two liters of liquefied butter. Yeah, that's the most silent we've ever been on the pod. The liquid butter put us into a full pause. <laughs> We didn't know what to say. We've never let there be a second of dead air on this podcast. And we just let liquid butter ooze in between us. Yeah. Um, it seems like the internet, I mean, boing, boing, it does not have a definitive answer. If you are work in marketing at Little Caesars or you know the truth, please let us know. If, uh, But I'm. it says it has the internet split and it also has Kara and Lisa split. Not like we're on different sides. We just do not know whether this is real. Well, um, I have been, you know, my new thing is I, I've been dropping off laundry the only twice, but there was a family enjoying a little Caesars in their car. And I was like, you guys have figured out the world. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Lisa was at the playground with me and my kids like last week. And this little girl walks in with like a little hot and ready packet. And Lisa goes, there she is. That's the MVP <laughs> of this playground. <laughs> I guess I'm really a fan of hot and ready in public places. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really impressed. Wait, but we do love Yellow Jackets. It is back. It is back, baby. The last five seconds of the first episode rocked my world. If you haven't seen it, if you haven't watched yet, fast forward. We don't have, we don't even have to go into details about it. I don't think even think we have to spoil it to be able to talk about it. It just like that little moment was like, this is why I'm watching Yellow Jackets. Because it was like, okay, 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 okay. And then I was like, oh, there she is. There's my Yellow Jackets. Like, it just was like, shocking, surprising, awesome, and why I'm watching. Twisted. I loved it. Yeah. I I also like the way that they figured out a way for a character who passed away to still be kind of in the show a little bit. Well, yeah, because she on the red carpets and stuff's like, they told me I'm out, I'm out, I'm out. I'm, <laughs> I'm pissed, but I'm out. And you're right. You know, they, they let her they let her in a little. Yeah, they figured out a little way. To keep getting her SAG insurance. I think people are memeing that, um, you know, when Taisa shows up at her son's school and she's just holding the dog <laughs> with like a wild smile on her face. Yeah, what's Everybody, the meme? I don't really know, but people are just like memeing her with like the little dog, like, you know, me when blank happens or whatever. Like, it's just such a funny, like, visual. Yeah, it really, like, picked up. It feels like right where it left off. Like, I don't, it doesn't feel like a huge jump. I don't know. No, no time has uh, jumped. Also, I'm ready to join Lottie's program. Like, (laughs) her speech up top, I go, you know what? If I would drop five grand... I would go. I would go for, a, you know, a 20-day no program. No one can change you except for you. Yeah, I was like, That's all right. That's <laughs> Lottie's thing. I was like, get me in there. Yeah. Get me in there. But I also am into Misty's detective prowess, skills. She's good at it. Yeah. 
she's on Reddit trolling the forums. I think that's where Elijah Wood's going to come in, right? That was his voice in a voiceover. Oh. Yeah. Like, I think he's going to be like a fellow detective. That's like, cute. Amateur I, detective. Because I want her to have a friend. I want her to have friendship. You know what I mean? Yeah. She deserves it. Well, she doesn't. She's bad. There's an interview with Christina Ricci and she goes, yeah, um, everyone that's like into Misty, please, you need help. This is a dangerous person. <laughs> This is not someone you want in your life. And like, uh, please, this, this is not a good sign if like you're connected to this woman. I know, but there is like something about Christina Ricci that is like, I don't know. I, I'm not scared of Misty, even though she is scary. Did she, okay, wait, clarification question. When she injected that cigarette with whatever the fuck, did she kill that woman or just like incapacitate her or like? Kara, please don't. Of course that woman is dead. She's dead. Okay, okay. She's a witness. She can't be trusted out in the wild. I know, I know. I just didn't know if she gave her something that turned her into like a vegetable or you know what I mean? Like I didn't know- You seem like Lisa Hochstein right now when the husband is cheating and she's like, wait, you think they had sex? I'm just, I don't know if my marriage is over yet, Lisa. I don't know. You think they had sex? A month ago, everything was fine. (laughs) That's so good. Like when someone's being obtuse to just be like, are you like Lisa Hoxtein right now? (laughs) Do you think they had sex is so fucking funny. Oh my God. Of course she murdered that bitch. Um, Wait, I did have a fun celebrity moment. Okay, so I have been, I have been meeting Caroline Ray, I would say 15 times at least. Like I'm obsessed with her. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I've been, I love Caroline Ray. I can't get enough of her. And every yeah. time I meet her, she, I'm always like, I never am like, oh, we've met. I, I'll, I'll keep reliving the fantasy as many times. Like, I'll <laughs> don't worry, darlings, however many times she wants, right? Like, <laughs> so I'm she in never it. remembers you? No, and it's totally, you know, one time I think she could sense my energy because I think I've said it on the podcast, Jack A. Harry was there too. And she like like hit her and was like, let's let's go over here. Like they like walked away from me. Like the energy was just too desperate on my (laughs) part. (laughs) So then finally I was opening Eleanor Kerrigan. If you see her special, she taped it at the comedy store recently. And so I opened for her tapings. So Caroline was there to support and I did do a good job opening for my friends. So finally, Caroline came up to me and I was like, I think this time she might remember. But again, it was like, hey, I'm Caroline. Yeah. I love you, girl. (laughs) And so I walked out back and I told some friends, I go, I think this might be the time she remembers me. I go, this might be it. And then my friend Steve Furio goes, yeah, I mean, it's like, show us the cat. Give us the cat. And I just started (laughs) laughing so hard. I was like. What does that mean, show us the cat? From Sabrina the Teenaged Witch. (laughs) (laughs) Salem. Yeah, like bring the cat. <laughs> I thought it was like a, yeah, like a phrase, like a turn no. of phrase. I was like, what the hell? No, it was like, girl, we we love you. <laughs> like, like, what game do you want us to play? But I, I I think I've said it on this podcast too. But I met her once, like ten years ago, and like, 
I loved her so much. We had such Honey, a good conversation. Keep and meeting she t- her. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be oh, like the never, first time never, every she time. She would never remember this. If she doesn't remember you after all these times, this was so many years ago. Oh, but I've like, brought um, her up before. I've hosted. I mean, I have been bringing her up on stage. I've been at multiple coasts. I've been at festivals. I've brought her up at Montreal. I mean, I, no, no tea, no shade. I, I think to our generation, she... We all get this excited. So I understand her point of view of like, okay, these women just like, they all just seem too excited. I don't know. Yeah. Like, but it was just funny when I go back there, I go, I think this might be the time she remembers me. And him <laughs> being like, yeah, just tell us about the cat. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> just like made me so happy. I just can't wait until I get to meet her again and have, I can't wait to get into where you are. Like I want to be on meeting 15 already. Like I'm only on, <laughs> I've only had one. So like, yeah. I need to get up there. <laughs> I feel like I saw my own sand Scandaval with my own eyes. Um, I was in the back of a comedy show and there was like a table of four and it was like a guy with his legs wide open and the ta- the girl in front of him was like in between his leg opening. And then the girl diagonal to him on the other side of the table, every time she would laugh, she would turn around to look back at him to like, is it okay to laugh? You know, like, and she wow. kept, like, she just kept looking at him to laugh and co- like connect. And to me, I'm like, wait, What's going on? Why is she connecting with him and this girl's in between his legs? So I was like, I wonder what's happening in this dynamic. Why are people in between each other's legs at comedy shows too? I don't know. You don't like that at all? (laughs) I don't. I think that feels really weird. That didn't bother me as much as the the three connecting. And then who was the fourth guy out? He's just sitting there like another girl. Three girls and a guy. Three girls, a guy, and not no pizza, no snacks at the comedy store. Oh, three girls, a guy, and no pizza place. Okay, so I hope it's not just a girl who's just like got misogyny so ingrained in her that she has to look at the man at the table to see like if he's laughing at the thing so she can laugh at it. That's the first thing I said on stage. That's the first thing I said on stage. I go, honey, I've been watching you this whole time. Feminism's happened. Stop looking at him. I go, stop looking at him. I go, you can laugh on your own, honey. That's the first thing I said. I I was like appalled. But she continued to do it. She continued to do it. It was wild. Wow. Okay, guys. So I know Casey just gave us the flag. We got to start the episode. But really quickly, I know a lot of you have been asking us, when is our show at the Moon Tower Comedy Festival, which is coming up at the end of April? And we finally have a date. It is going to be Friday, April 21st at 8 p.m. at 800 Congress. That is the name of the venue in Austin, 800 Congress. And it's part of the Moon Tower Comedy Festival. Now, for some reason, this fest has not gotten us a ticket link yet, but you know that the second that we get one, we're going to be throwing it up on thatsmessedoplive.com. So please keep checking that or just follow us on Instagram. And our Instagram is going to have all the ticket info for Moon Tower as soon as it's up. But right now you can mark your calendars for Friday, April 21st at 8 p.m. at 800 Congress. And we will get you the ticket link as soon as possible on our Instagram. Okay, let's get started with today's episode. Right. We got Haystack, Season 8, Episode 15. You know what? I was just watching the... There's a new three-part, I think. I kind of fell asleep, but it's about the Malaysian Airlines. Yeah, yeah, I heard about that. It is fucked up what happened, and no one knows. 
I mean, it is so fucked up. But the reason I thought of it is because there's someone says it's not finding a needle in a haystack. Like it's finding the haystack. Like they can't even yes. find the haystack. Yes. Yeah. And so that wow. kind of stuck with me. But we're now in SVU. That's where we're at. And a woman is being choked uh, close up with a bunch of candles behind her. And we turn to a ginger bearded man. And I thought it was going to be a movie shooting trope start. I was wrong. Um, the bitch is choking herself in a game of charades. So that's that's the gag of it all. Yesterday, Rosie goes, let's play charades. And Jared goes, okay. And she goes, ah! And he goes, no, charades is quiet. She goes, this charade is loud. <laughs> I was like, you are the craziest. Uh, so what was her charade? She made up this animal called like a, a paploma or something. And it's an animal that screams. So she was being that. Um, I wonder what it looks like. You should have made her draw <laughs> She's it. drawn it. She's drawn it. We have What it. does it look like? <laughs> I mean, it looks like a kid who just learned how to draw shapes. It's like, it's crazy. She has it drawn on a tiny little easel canvas. I'll take a picture of it and I'll show it to you. But is I'll it I'll put named? it on the Instagram. But is it named after Paloma the cocktail? Pimplo no, it's not a pimp. It's like a pim. It's like a pine a pinopola or something. Like I don't know. She made up the name, and I it's escaping me right now. But that's what her charade was. <laughs> her loud charade. So cute. So the beard, the ginger beard is guessing. We open up on a whole gaggle of people um, and they're shouting out guesses. One of the women is like, wait, fuck, did you hear something? And everyone's like, shut up, you dumb bitch. <laughs> um, but she walks to another room to check what she heard um, as they keep playing. She walks into a baby's room and the window is open and, um, you know, the mobile, the mobile, what is it? Mobile? M mobile, yeah. Um, is swinging. I used to love making those in school. That was like my favorite project. Cute. It's swinging and she checks the crib and oh no, the baby is gone. She screams, Garrett, Garrett. Uh, we cut to Mike Doyle, a.k.a. O'Halloran, friend of the pod. And he's filling in Maloney in the halls. Um, so the baby is Kendall Kozlowski, 13 months. The mother put him down at six. Um, and the baby is missing at 10 when she checked on him. The window is open, but there the window has no locks and there's no fingerprints. Maloney asks if there are any videos or witnesses. Nothing so far. And he's like, well, find me something. It's like, honey. They're on it. So Maloney <laughs> approaches the couple who's holding each other stressed. Um, she asks if there's any news, and he sadly says no. He asks to see the photo of the baby, and the photo is cute, and she's like a mess. She's staring into the distance. I'll never see my baby again. Wildly, all the candles still lit, still glowing. No one blew them out. So um, many candles. <laughs> so many. It's really a candle. It's a seance. <laughs> um, Maloney says, uh, we're doing everything we can to find your son. And she responds, I know who took him. Dan Kozlowski, my ex-husband. Done, done. Credits, we open back up and we got a Cragen and Maloney. Um, we're walking, we're talking. It's a busy workroom. The rap sheet came back and Dan has some burglary, possession of stolen property. The mom is squeaky clean. Um, so he walks in and asks uh, a Bangs, Be Bangs Benson, which which means she has bangs at the moment. <laughs> if she can help in an interview, she says, yes, please. And Cragen says, no, you don't leave the desk until you review every paper on the Judkins appeal. So Stabler's like, please, like, I need help. And Cragen's like, no, shut up, save it. And sends Elliot in alone. And I don't get why she's in trouble and on desk duty. And I kept being like, oh, this is around the brother's DNA, this and that. But that happens towards the end of this episode. 
So I don't understand why she's on desk duty. Obviously, this is like around the time she had a baby or something. But what's going on here? Like loophole, you said, was two episodes before? What's yeah. the episode right before? Maybe she just went... But I'm she sure she just went against... Bad. I'm telling you, she didn't do... Yeah. No, well, loophole, she gets like almost fucking carbon monoxided to death. Yeah, but then at the or end whatever. of that episode, they they march on into a big wig's office to demand, yeah. you know, insurance money. <laughs> yeah. So she's up and kicking. The next one is the princess bride guy. You know, he's like the defense attorney for gangs and stuff. Yeah. And the son like sees who kills. So like... She doesn't do anything shady. The brother, she does something shady at the end of this episode. So I, I don't, or maybe she really just has a ton of paperwork for this case. But well, I don't it get it. It says also there's the episode Dependent is the one right before this. And it's where they question a confused young woman about an attack on her parents and Stabler puts his career on the line when he goes too far. That's not her. I know, that's what I mean. I, I really This can't. is weird. All right, well, I'm sure everyone will tell us. Because if it's her, like, if it's her having a baby or whatnot, then they could have, I don't know. But also this episode, there's no Munch and there's no Finn. This whole huh. episode. Yeah. It's a Craig and Maloney. So, like, it was it Passover? I Like, I don't understand how everyone was gone. And the gone. episodes are so, like, standalone that it's weird that they wouldn't even, like, put a reference to what it is that she's doing wrong. Or done what she's in trouble for. Or maybe this was this huge case she has to do paperwork for. But they should have made it more clear. But also the fact that Munch and Finn are not going to be in this episode at all. Not even, not even like go do desk duty. Zero. It's yeah. it's wild. We never really see Cragen out and about. Maybe Dan Florek was like, I'm sick of being a crossing guard. I need to work, you know. Maybe he was demanding some more fun. But Whatever, we're back. So Maloney's in there with the mom, with Ashley Williams. And, and Ashley Williams is smoking a cigarette inside. So, okay, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm obsessed, obsessed. But her child is missing. Elliot right away asks if she has any idea where her ex-husband could be. And she's like, check the nearest OTB. He's a compulsive better. So um, they were together one year, nine months, and three days. She says marrying him was the worst mistake of her life. Stabler's kind of a dick and says, why did you do it? Rude. Um, he does need Olivia in there. She got pregnant. She didn't want to raise a child alone. She did think Dan would be a good father, and he was for a bit, but he just loved the tracks, maxing out her credit cards, and then he cashed out all the bonds her bought uh, her mom bought for Kendall. So he contacted her last week, desperate for money. She didn't have any. He asked to call her parents and ask for money. Okay, LOL. Um, she told him to piss off and he told her she would be sorry. Stabler stares at her and says nothing. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Can we please get Liv in there? She, her child is missing. She gets panicked with his silence and is like, fuck, do you think he'd hurt Kendall to get back at me? He asks if he's ever uh, been violent before and she's like, only with walls and furniture. So knock at the door, Highway has got him, high-speed chase, Maloney runs off. A bunch of cop cars surround him and he's running to the river with a big bag and Maloney is like, please, it's cool, it's cool. Be cool, Dan, don't be all like uncool. Uh <laughs> If you get it, you get it. If you know, you know. Uh, but he throws the... If you don't know, it's Lou Andalus from Real Housewives of New York. <laughs> and if you don't know, we're also going to tell you. 
<laughs> Hoodie throws the bag in the water. Maloney screams, no. Maloney jumps in. It's dark as hell. We hear other cops scream to EMS, there's a baby in the water. He can't find a bag in the river um, since it's pitch black. Um, so Maloney is now sopping wet, grabbing Pablo Schreiber by the neck going, what? That was your son. And he's like, what? Wait, what about my son? Maloney is shirtless, by the way, and um, with a towel over his neck. So this is fun. Um, a uni tells Maloney they got something. He walks to the bag. It's not a baby. It's cocaine. Eight kilos. Pablo, but why wouldn't Pablo just be like, that's, my son is not in that bag. Yeah. Pablo now is in interrogation and he's claiming he doesn't know where his son is. So he's like, fine, tell me about the drugs. And Maloney accuses him of selling his kid for drugs. <laughs> so, wow. He says he would never do that and I do believe him. So Maloney's like, fine, where were you last night? Why the coke? He's scratching the back of his neck, not wanting to talk. Maloney gets frustrated, gets in his face and straight up is like, you say you care about your son? Stop trying to cover your own ass and start helping me find your boy. What were you doing last night and why? He yells again, what were you doing? Then says, yeah, you love your kid, sarcastically. And so finally he talks. He admits that he was playing the ponies. So after Laura threw him out, it got really bad. And so his bookie sold all his debt to a drug dealer who needed a mule. Ugh. Maloney's like, why would he trust a, a gambling addict? And like, why would you trust him with so much coke and... He's like, well, he threatened to murder my family. Are you new here, detective? And then he's like, oh, fuck. You got to give me back the coke. You have to. Oh, my God, I have to make this delivery. If I don't make the delivery, they're going to kill my son. And Maloney's like, we're not giving you the drugs back. Are you new? <laughs> like... And then Maloney's like, tell me where, you know, Bernardo is. Last chance. And he holds the coke in his hand. And right as he is about to talk, Pablo caves and, um, I mean, about to walk, not talk. And Pablo caves and says in his, um, in his stash house in the Bronx. And then there's a raid. People in bras, no shirts, with masks working in the cocaine factory. And is this um, for safety or so no one steals the drugs? I think it's honestly so you don't like inhale cocaine and get fucked up. Not the masks, oh. the nakedness. <laughs> yes, yes. I think that's about theft. Yes, sorry. <laughs> the dealer is just, well, yeah, this isn't cocaine I just, bear. I like, was obsessed in cocaine bear when the kids were like, I've done cocaine. Have you done cocaine? And then they just eat cocaine and it tastes so bad. Cocaine bear, like when the coke is going into like, the cocaine bear is so expressive and he reminds me of Deep Blue Sea. Were you into that movie where the smart oh, sharks? I never saw that. Oh, we should watch that. <laughs> Deep Blue Sea is like LL Cool J and a yeah. big crew of people, but it's like extra smart sharks. In oh, like scary. It's like, you know, did you see Megalodon? No, the Meg? Yeah, Meg. No. No. Oh, see, I really love that genre. I think, Ex like, um, Prius, like, really smart like super sharks, super predators, just like, yeah, yeah, super yeah. predators. I think I'm into. <laughs> <laughs> but, anyways, yeah, if you know any fun shark movies, I think I like it. It is upsetting. My shark tattoo does not have sharp teeth. Okay, so the cocaine factory gets, you know. I was about to say exploited, but raided. The dealer just says, lawyer, lawyer, he's a pro. And then Maloney does one of my favorite lines, like, there's so much blow here. Your parole officer hasn't even been born yet. But maybe I can put in a good word with the judge if you tell me about Dan. And he's like, oh, Dan, that's the little punk who gave me up. But the boy is not here. 
And then a RoboCop dressed officer relays that the dealer is like, no, kids, I don't fuck with kids. Ammonia's like, listen, it's your lucky day. I don't care about your cocaine. I only care about the boy. And he's like, I don't do kids. Like, leave me alone. He asks if White Dan was at the house last night and he confirms that he was. The count was off. So they were redoing the packaging until 10 p.m. So Maloney has to tell the mom that it was not Dan Kozlowski. So... Since the cops don't care about the coke, like, do you think the drug dealer lets Dan go? Or, like, is he about to get beaten up by the drug dealers? You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know how he settles all that. Or are they empathetic because it's like, okay, your son is missing. Like, I don't don't think drug dealers, I don't, I think drug dealers are like, where's my coke? They don't care about your kid. Yeah. All right. So he's like, okay, help me out here. Have you noticed anyone paying extra attention to you or Kendall recently? And she's like, yes, actually, I felt someone was watching me. She would turn around and no one would be there. Sometimes the car would take, you know, turn, disappear, or the corner. She thought she was paranoid or it was Dan. So she recaps her day from um, the day before he went missing. She took Kendall to the park. It started to rain. So they went to the movies and then she picked up party snacks. So she makes a list of all the places and people for Maloney. Craig and Maloney talk to a movie theater worker who remembers her. And he's like, you rip tickets all day. Why do you remember her? And she's like, well, I said, you know, no noise baby policy. If your baby acts up, you're out of here. No refund. But the kids slept through the whole movie. Um, And she didn't notice anybody giving the baby attention or anything like that. Um, And she's like, I actually didn't even see the baby. She had one of those plastic covers over it. And that's how I like babies. Not seen or heard. So now they go talk to the baby's and he's like, oh, that's a quiet baby. That's the only reason I agreed to babysit. And they're like, why did you need to babysit? And he goes, well, Laura went to get food for and wine for the party, so I came down to help. Cragen asks about the window. Was it open? And he's like, I actually never went in there. The baby was napping, and Laura didn't want me to wake him up. So they go outside, and they're like, okay, the baby is a ghost. Nobody saw the baby. So then they're like, wait, what's the last verified sighting of the baby? Maloney says Friday afternoon when she picked him up from the babysitter at 5 p.m., and no one ever saw the baby again. And I mean, ever, really, until, you know, she called 911 Saturday night. So we only have Laura's word that the baby was alive and well. So now the, the, the obvious conclusion is Laura killed her child. So we're back in the baby's room. They're rechecking for new evidence. And the mom is like, you've already done all this bullshit. Why are you here? You should be out there. That's more productive. And Maloney's like, whatever happened started here. We got to make sure we don't miss anything. And then she starts yelling like, what the fuck are you doing to my carpet? What are you doing to my house? And Maloney's like, wrong question, lady. A mother with a missing child would ask what more she could do to help, not impede the investigation dramatic music plays. She gets what's being implied and she says, I'll get out of your way and walks off. Cragen asks, what's your read? And Maloney says, well, she went ballistic, which is so sexist. She did not go ballistic. Like (laughs) barely ballistic. Her child is missing. Like she's allowed to be a little emotional. Oh, Halloran runs in and says, I got something. In the trash, they find baby sweaters of Kendall's toys, blankets, and Maloney's like, wow, dumped everything. And um, then they're like, fuck, is that blood on the blanket? And now there's a sonogram. So Stabler and Cragen walk the streets talking shit. Well, do you have a baby uh, uh, book or scrapbook? What do you do? A box? What do you keep baby shit in? No, no. I have the sonograms in my bedside table. Okay. I don't have like, I don't really have like a scrapbook. I wanted to make albums for every year of their lives and I haven't done it yet. And Rosie's going to be four in two weeks. So I'm behind. Well, I know you <laughs> keep every little card and stuff. So I yeah, thought maybe I do. you'd keep their I, like teeth. I don't know. Well, they haven't lost any yet, but I yeah. probably will. 
Yeah. I probably will. I didn't get to keep the sliver of Oscar's chip tooth that uh, fell when he uh, fell out of his high chair. <laughs> so, I don't know why that sent shivers just, up my spine. It's like not, it's not where he would feel it. It's like... <laughs> So Stabler and Cragen walk the streets talking shit while Stabler has a box of baby goods under his arm. And they uh, see some press, and it's Cindy Marino, um, who he calls the poor man's Geraldo, which is funny because Geraldo is not for the rich, you know? he's Geraldo. Yeah, Geraldo, Geraldo. <laughs> it felt wrong, but I didn't know how. But also, Geraldo is like the poor man's Oprah. Everyone's the poor man's Oprah. Like, yeah, oh, it's like Geraldo is the poor man's Geraldo. Geraldo's yeah. not for anybody high level. <laughs> like, no. Um, but Cindy Marino, she, Cindy Mar- wait. Oh, I was Wendy Marino. That was my character when I would go to law schools and pretend oh to be um, a UPS <laughs> employee that was sexually harassed. I was like, that name is like hitting me in like, oh, in my heart. I love that. So um, they're like, oh, it's your favorite, you know. Um, so whatever, Cindy Marino wants juice. And they're like, well, it's your favorite, a grieving mother. You love writing more than news, huh? They don't respect her. She's like, come on, give me something. She's a crackhead for sad news. And Maloney says, I wonder how the baby sonogram wound up in the garbage. Her gold hoops ass smiles. Maloney's now at Melinda Warner's asking for some science-based evidence, but... She's not finding anything from the goods. But it's not blood. It's strained peaches. And she knows that from experience. So, wow, she has kids. I don't know if we've ever known that or ever I, talked I about that it. I that, too. I was like, oh, Melinda has a daughter. I just didn't Never mentioned that. again before yeah. ever just about the strained peaches. Like She has a dog named Pete, Petey. She has a husband. Well, the husband, she, has- she mentions a few times. But I'm just saying, like, we've had holiday dinners at the house. Like, we've had teen daughters dead on her slabs. Like, never a mention. But all of a sudden, right now, there is. Also, like, how many problems has Ken had? How many problems has, like, Dickie and, and the Stabler kids? We can't get... We can't get... Melinda Warner's daughter in with like one issue, like a friend got attacked at a party. Let's get her in here. Let's cast we, her. We know that her sister worked at Saks and we yep. know, all, the only thing we know about Melinda's daughter is she ate strained peaches <laughs> as a baby. <laughs> Housed them, loved them. We don't even know where she went to college. She could have just been like, oh, my girl goes to Hudson. Like, yeah. I, I should get her a rape whistle. Like nothing. <laughs> So he asks why she killed him, and she's like, same old story, abuse, accident, shaken baby, you know the drill. They decide the best thing for everyone is for Stabler to go home and get some sleep. Next thing we see, though, is O'Halloran in a corduroy jacket throwing a ball in the air like a young, cool teacher about to change the lives of some students. Um, And he's got something for Stabler. He's like, I figured you wouldn't want to wait till morning. Several strands of hair from a screw from the fire escape ladder, and the perp bumped his head on the way down, and it couldn't be Laura's. It's blonde, not brown. Someone else was definitely on the fire escape and they're bringing it down to Melinda. Sibler goes, eh, it could be old. And Ryan's like, no, it can't be old. <laughs> With all the rain, there's no way it's old. This is our first solid lead. Cragen interrupts. Cindy Marino is on TV with an interview with Laura. We see Laura on screen in the same green hoodie we've been seeing her in. She says, I heard a noise when she went to check. He was gone. And then she's like, you were drinking. You were smoking. There's weed in the air. You murdered your baby. And this woman starts going at her and she's the prime suspect. You threw your sonogram in the trash. You hated your baby. She's shocked. She starts yelling. No, I loved Kendall. She kicks her out of her house. She flips out. And obviously, like, 
She just accused her of killing her own child on national television. O'Halloran's like, well, who tipped Cindy off about the sonogram? And Cragen slowly turns his head towards Stabler, who's like, I did, with no guilt. Like, I just really hate him sometimes. He goes to visit her. Her door is spray-painted baby killer and vandalized. He wants to talk to her. She is not answering. He bangs um, on the door. It just opens. No answer. The candles are still lit. The candles are very important to her. The apartment is dark. He goes through the apartment, then sees her hanging on the chandelier. She has taken her own life with an extension cord. Thanks, Stabler. Great fucking work. We're now on a busy siren-sounding crime scene where Cragen says um, that the reports, the Emmy said the death was instantaneous and she did not suffer. And it's like, define suffer. There was some suffering. Stabler is finally feeling guilty. He's like, I thought she was lying to me. That's why I sicked the reporter on her. Cragen's like, Laura still could have killed Kendall. And Marino's back at work being like, any note, was there a confession? And he walks to her like Frankenstein, very slow and angry and calls her the devil. And it's like, if she's the devil, who are you? Who are you? Right. Who's the devil's little friend? That's you. She says, I'm, I'm just doing my job. Somebody has to. Somebody has to ask the tough questions since the cops don't have the balls. He tries to get in her face. Craig and holds him back. Cut to Novak and Stabler in a walk-in talk in the precinct hallways. And her hair is flowing in the wind, Beyonce style. <laughs> Gorgeous strawberry blonde. And she's like, you fucking knew she was an uneth- unethical garbage and sleazy and knew how she operated. He's like, I didn't mean for her to go that far. Fuck you, Elliot. She says it's morally inexcusable, but it's not a crime. And he's like, well, tell Laura that. And it's like, we can't, Elliot. And you are responsible. Cragen pops out. Warner called. The DNA from the hairs on the fire, fire escape are not the perps. They're Kendall's. But she ran those hairs against Pablo Schreiber's. Guess what? He is not the baby's father. Maury, done, done. Okay. <laughs> Why Not did- the father. Yeah. He's the poor man's Geraldo. <laughs> Maury Povich. My queen, I love Jenny Jones. She was my wheelhouse. That was my, I love Jenny Jones and Ricky like the most out of anyone of the daytime okay. talk show hosts. And I think some people would say Jenny Jones is a poor man's uh, S- Sally Jesse Raphael, but to each their own. Yeah, Sally Jesse, I would dabble in, but. Jenny, that's where the bad teens were. And I liked the teens. And I liked Ricky Lake a lot too. Oh yeah. Ricky Lake was, like, Jenny was like, I have sex for a cheeseburger, like that. I I liked that. Like, yeah, like bad teens. Catch Me Outside girls were like lined up outside the block at Jenny Jones. Like that's what was happening. And then Ricky Lake was more like, I hate my own race. Oh, really? Was that it? What was Ricky Lake? <laughs> or makeovers? Remember. Maybe it was more makeover. I don't remember, but no, I No, did... I think Ricky had some wild people on too. But you know, she was like 24 when that show started and that's what 24-year-olds looked like. Like, that's the meme I saw. They're like, that's what 24-year-olds looked and dressed like in the 90s. Wait, what was the show, the talk show, where a girl was allergic to pickles and somebody like ran after her with a pickle on the show? You're an insane person that is Drag Race. That is a Miss Cracker sketch. No. No, it is. But yes, yes, but it's based on something else. There was one where it was like, confront your fears. Yes, you're right. That is from Drag Race. But (laughs) there was one that was like, confront your fears and they like truly ran after someone and she was freaking out on TV and I was like, this feels wrong. Like, I wasn't laughing like I would for it Drag is, Race. Uh, it is Drag Race. No, but I think it's based on something. Drag Race Casey, always bases that shit. Case Maury. Maury. He's saying it's Maury. Yes. 
Who else? And then Dr. Phil, like, um, Mateo Lane has a joke where he ha- he calls all these people Oprah's horcruxes. And Dr. Yes. Phil is one of her horcruxes. And they're all bad. Like, anyone that Oprah really endorsed ended up being terrible. Including Jenny McCarthy. I yeah. think. And, like, I, I, I saw this article in New York Magazine one time that was, like, two... The cover of it was two Oprahs sitting across from each other. And the article was all about how, like, Oprah let Suzanne Summers come on the show and take 75 pills and tells people that that's okay to be taking 75 supplements a day when it's not. Like, so I remember, like, that was the first time there was, like, a crack in the Oprah, like, armor to me. Yeah, the thing is, she did... She, what, started in the 80s, ended in the 2000s? Of course, there's going to be a couple bumps in the road. Yes. But I think even in her later days, she gave platforms to bad people with junk yes. science. Yes. You know? Dr. Look at Oz, the Oz is monster trash. she created. Isn't she Rachel Ray, too? Yeah, but is Rachel Ray bad or just annoying? She's just untalented, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so we're back. We're back from the Horcrux discussion of daytime television talk shows. So anyways, so they're all like, why didn't Laura tell us that Dan is not the father? And they're like, well, maybe she didn't know that. And Novak's like, well, I'm sure the real bio daddy did know that. And he's the one that took the baby. So now what? So now they go to Dan Kozlowski to find out if he knew he was raising another man's child. Oh, and I haven't mentioned for some strange reason, but Dan Kozlowski is Pablo Schreiber. (laughs) Like, this is so Oh, yeah, you were calling him that before, but you didn't actually call attention to it. (laughs) It's Pablo. Pablo Schreiber, a.k.a. Porn Stash from Orange is the New Black, one of the Pokemon we hope to catch one day, but also William Lewis. William Lewis. Um, So, yeah. So he cannot, he can't believe Kendall isn't his. Everyone always said, oh, he has your eyes, which proves everyone's a fucking liar and all your babies are ugly, except for Kara's. He asks (laughs) if he has any idea who the father could be. And he's like, well, you know, I was hooking up with other girls. I never asked if she was hooking up with other guys. One month into dating, she said she was pregnant. It was mine. And that's that. Saber's like, you never doubted it. And Pablo's like, he is mine. And I like that. He says, I love my son. And Stabler asks if um, Laura ever talked about any exes. And he's like, she would have nightmares and thrash and say, Patty, 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 please don't hurt me, Patty. She woke up sobbing. And when he asked about it, she said it was an ex who used to beat her. So Stabler's like, well, give me more info on Patty. She, he says she wouldn't talk about him and she didn't want to go to a shrink, but maybe she did talk to Garrett about it. So Stabler talks to Garrett, who's gay vibes. So Stabler meets him on the streets of New York and wildly Laura hung out with a rough crowd. I just didn't get that vibe from her at all. No, they're playing she has so charades. Many candles. <laughs> yeah, just playing charades with like a little weed and wine. Like, I don't know. Yeah, she seemed pretty wholesome. So mostly in Attica. Um, and Stabler asks, visiting inmates? And it's actually just a bar, but that was like a fun little thing. So <laughs> it's on Avenue A, and that's where she met Patty, and he was a bad boy, possessive, violent. Patty just vanished one day, and Laura told Garrett it was because he was mixed up in a murder. Um, she was totally terrified he would ever come back. And why didn't she mention it, though? And Stabler is like, can Patty be the daddy? And Garrett's like, yeah, it's so fucking obvious. And he brought it up to Laura once, and she flipped out and said, never mention it again. He doesn't remember Patty's last name. Only They only met once. And he's like, listen, with that temper, I'm sure his dumbass is in prison. So we're in the office. Benson's at her desk. Ruben Morales is clickety-clacking, checking corrections for Patty. There's 
1,372 matches. And then he narrows it down by some things and it's 704. And then they narrow it down and then a dream team walks in. We got Warner, Novak, superstars. Melinda's like, you're not going to find him in there. So I got Kendall's Y chromosomes. I ran it through CODIS. The dad is not in there. So it's like the DNA, whatever. So the DNA is not in CODIS. It's not going to match anyone that's in prison. But she did this new thing. Um, It's running for low DNA alleles, which is new, but it's not going to find the perfect match, but it'll find a chill match. So it's not the perp, but a relation. So a cousin, a father, a brother. So this is actually where Benson is like, oh, interesting. Wait, you can find a family member with this kind of test? And again, why is she at the desk? So they throw out a net that's allowable, but Ruben is not into this. And he's like very munched. And he's like, boo-hoo, it's not legal. This proves nothing. And Melinda's like, it's not proof. It's an investigative tool. And he's like, it's a violation of civil civil liberties. You go after me because my dad's a perp. That's guilt by association. Sabler's like, I'm more worried about a missing kid than your civil liberties. Let's go. Ruben turns around, dejected, and leaves. Stablers asks if Casey can make this work in court, and she says she'll try, and let's all go shake the family tree. So with Kendall's DNA, we got nine hits. Um, there's George Kendall uh, is there, so Stabler's like, oh, maybe uh, she named Kendall after the father. And Melinda's like, why would you name the child after an abusive ex? And he's like, control doesn't end after, you know, the like the relationship does, you know? the control over Mm -hmm. the victim is still had. So we land on George Kendall. It's an old-ass man, a career-armed robber, you know, serving 25 to life. So Stabler's visiting and playing the game for sure. He's like, oh, we're just searching for a relative. We found a baby whose mother just died. So this is pretty clever. And Stabler's like, "Um, you know, are you ready to be a dad? And the guy laughs and is like, can't be me. I never had kids. I gave the best years of my life to the state. But they're like, so are you related to anyone named Patty? And he's like, that's a dumb question. We're Irish. All the boys are called Patty. And he has five brothers and sisters. Anybody has kids? Uh, One is dead. Two are nuns. Maeve had a couple of kids, all girls, but brother Sean, God rest his soul, his wife Peggy had a mess of boys. It's like, you could have just said Peggy. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Like, (laughs) so why are you mentioning the nuns? So they go visit Peggy. Classic. This is a classic face, I would say. Her name is Marion Seldes. Seldes? I'm not really sure. But she's a Tony Award winning actress born in 1928. She did pass in 2014. Nominated for five Tonys. Um, she won for her first nomination for, uh, she was in Edward Albee's A Delicate Balance. In 2010, she received a Tony Lifetime Achievement Award. She has over 100 credits. She has a real evil vibe. Okay, I'm sure yeah. she could be kind, but she she looks like an evil bitch, okay? She was Big's mother in Sex in the City in the church I didn't realize scene. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I also recognize her from Mona Lisa Smile. She was the president of the school. Is that a movie for you? Is this another blind spot, Kara? That's a blind spot for me. Never seen Mona Lisa Smile. I feel like you would love it. It's like a woman's college education, yeah. female bonds. You would love this. I bet I would love it. I just, Julia I, yeah, Roberts, I it. Jennifer Goodwin, Kristen Dunst, Michelle Williams. I, I know. Who else? There's more. It's star You know what it is? It came out when I was living in Italy. So I was like, it did. if it didn't come out with like an English version in the theater, then I would be like, I just missed a lot of movies that Write year. Write it down. You would love. Marsha Gay Harden, yes. friend of the pod. 
you would love Mona Lisa's smile. So she obviously plays a vindictive bitch in that. Um, and then, cool, because we talked to so many people that went to Juilliard. She taught acting at Juilliard from 1967 to 1991. Wow. And then at Fordham's Lincoln Center campus from 2002 on. Wow. Some of her students were Robin Williams, Laura Linney, Patti Lapone. And so, really cool. Damn, and Peggy a legend. is not letting them in without a warrant. And he's like, come on, we're just trying to find family from an orphan child. And she picks up the newspaper and the case is on the front page. And she's like, oh, is it this one? I'm not having it. You're bold as brass trying to pin a kidnapping on one of my sons. Ugh, I'm obsessed with her. <laughs> and he's like, no, I'm just trying to find the father. And she responds, my brother-in-law may have fallen for that line, but my mother never raised any fools. Now you get off my property. So slams the door. Elliot calls Melinda immediately. He's like, pull birth certificates, please, to all kids born to Peggy Kendall. So, oh my God, this bitch had 11 kids. Very Kara Clank. Um, and, well, not, no, <laughs> more your grandmother. My, mom, my grandma, yeah. <laughs> um, all boys. Kill me. So they pull all the DMV photos of all these boys. They play games, ruling some people out, in and out. Sailor's like, great, let's get the DNA from the others. Novak's like, no dice. Low stringency analysis is too circumstantial. Only when we narrow it down to one suspect can we do that. So he's got to go actually investigate and do your fucking job, Stabler. So Cragen rushes in. They found Kendall. He's alive. He was dropped off at a firehouse. Hell yes. No cameras or footage, but we got the little baby at the firehouse. And um, we're going to take him into the hospital for a full checkup. And the cops will meet them there. Um, but not before fucking Cindy Marino is there to prod and poke Stabler with questions. She wants to confirm that the baby has been found. Stabler angrily says, you want an exclusive? And she says, you bet. And he says, contrary to Channel 10 reporter, Cindy Marino's libelous, libels, libelous, libelous. That doesn't sound like a real word. Accusations. Laura <laughs> Kozlowski did not kill her son, Kendall. He's been found alive. And the doctor's like, baby boy is fine. Well fed, no dehydration, not even diaper rash. Someone took great care of him. In runs a man looking for the baby. He's one of Peggy's sons. I see from the photos from earlier. He's tall. It might be important um, that Kara might know him from Twin Peaks. Yes. It's Bobby Briggs. And his real name is Dana Ashbrook. Yes, he was a pivotal character on on Twin Peaks, like huge. Like I, I don't know. I was so young when I watched Twin Peaks. I was like, oh my God, he has that bad boy energy like in Twin Peaks big time. And Stabler approaches him and asks, who are you? And he says, I'm the baby's father, James Kendall. And Stabler gets a sinister look on his face and says, I bet people call you Patty. Done, done. Okay, so we're in interrogation. Patty's like, I don't have time for this. It's late. I need to get my son home. And they're like, you haven't been in your son's life this long. What's the fucking rush now? And Stabler lets him know that they're not going anywhere till the DNA results come back. And he's like, we look exactly alike. And it's like, again, like... They thought that he looked like the other guy. Not the, None of this is real, we've learned. Yeah. Stabler says, your name is not on his birth certificate. And Patty goes, Laura didn't know she was pregnant when they broke up. He claims that they were getting back together and she was just waiting for her divorce from Kozlowski to be finalized to say they were getting back together. Stabler's like, why didn't you come forward when your child went missing? He's like, I had no clue. He was, I was at my cabin, no phone, no TV, nothing. And Stabler's like, wow, convenient timing. You come back hours after your son reappears? 
He ignores that question and just sits down. He then asks, any luck finding the guy who took him? And Saber looks at him um, and goes, oh, I've got the guy. And he says it really softly. And then Patty goes, oh, well, why haven't you arrested him yet? No proof, huh? So he goes, but I'll get it. So he responds, well, you let me know when you do. And I'd love to get, you know, this bastard brought to justice. So knock, knock on the glass. It's Cragen. The DNA did come back. It is the father. So he wants to take his baby home and that's that. He asks if he has a car seat and it's uh, the law. You can't leave without one. So Patty is fucking annoyed about this, but he goes, my mother will bring one. So Peggy is with the baby in a stroller, still no car seat. So I don't <laughs> understand. <laughs> Why is he called Patty if his name is James? I assume these boys were all named Patrick. You just call boys Patty? Yeah, it might be like an Irish thing. I don't know. I Irish really people, know. let us know. What's with know. the Patty? So Peggy's with a baby and Patty is in leather and Stabler's like, Kozlowski uh, <laughs> runs in the elevator doors open and he rushes towards the baby. They start to fight over the baby. He calls Peggy a crazy bitch. Patty is like, that's my mom. So we're going to have a problem. And I, I, I love that they love corralling enemies in the elevator lobby. <laughs> Yeah. There's some shoving. Dan calls Patty a psychopath. Patty calls Dan a drug mule. Dan punches him. There's a full fist fight. Very Irish pub bar vibes. Peggy and Stabler are trying to separate them. And they're like, he started it. No, he started it. Um, very grade school vibes now. Arrest him. No, arrest him. Stabler pushes Patty against the wall and says, don't push your luck. Don't push your luck. Get out of here. He says, Ma, get the baby. Pablo's face is covered in blood, smeared all over. He says, this is wrong. Can't you do something? It cuts to an office hang where Cragen is like, we have nothing on Patty. Nothing. He's completely clean. And Sabre's like, listen, they were not getting back together. That is a lie. Laura was terrified of him. He kidnapped that baby. And when we got close to him, mommy tipped him off and the baby was returned. Novak chimes in. Laura's suicide gave him custody. Sabler says Laura did not want Patty to have Kendall. We have to do something about this. Novak is like, how do you know that? Sabler says she was in a custody battle with Dan for the baby. So all she had to do was tell the court it was Patty's child to end it, but she would never. So Novak is like, okay, I can bring that up in court, but there's still another hole. Why didn't she tell us about Patty when Kendall disappeared? Because he was out of the picture. She probably didn't even think he knew about the kid and definitely didn't want to, him finding out about it from us. So Cragen brings up the domestic violence and Novak's like, can anyone document any of this? Stabler says she told Dan and... um Garrett, her best friend, and he saw the injuries. So she has an idea. We cut to Peggy's house and we hear her say, you're not putting my grandson in foster care. So a child service rep is there and that the DA made them aware that the son had a history of domestic violence. She calls it a pack of lies. She says, um, still, we've done a psych assessment, a home study, and we can't let Kendall stay with her son. And she says, not over my dead body. And they're like, honey, if you interfere, you can be arrested. She's so sad. It is a struggle for her. She holds back tears, but she hands over the baby and lets them all know that she has a very good lawyer and we'll get him back and this isn't over. And she glares her famous glare. How do you think she has money for like a great lawyer raising 11 kids in Manhattan and it looks like a brownstone? Like, what's up? Well, that's a great question. The Manhattan and the 11 kids of it all, that's like not real. But also maybe they have like a rent-stabilized building because they've been there forever. And also maybe the great lawyer is like a family friend. Got it. You know? 
now we're back in the hallway and Novak's like, oh, I call that a win for the people to Elliot. And Sabre was like, we still have to prove that Patty is the kidnapper. Then a young woman asks for Elliot and he's like, yeah, can I help you? You've been served. And he has been served. And he's like, can you believe this, Casey? And the woman turns back around and is like, Casey Novak? Cool. You just saved me a trip downtown. You could have done that part, Lisa. You could have done that part. <laughs> She's getting served too. <laughs> obsessed. I'm obsessed. This is the humor. This is the humor we love. And this is when it hit me. No Munch, no Finn, no Benson. Yeah. But it's we, a stabler heavy baby. Peggy said, but I want to know what, if we need to ask Neil Bear. Maybe he remembers like what was happening during this that they were all off work. Like, I, I'm just yeah. so curious. So Peggy did say she had a good lawyer and it's already coming to use. So Patty is suing Stabler and Casey for harassment and violation of his civil rights. So ADAs are supposed to have immunity though. So what's going on? We cut to Judge Elizabeth Donnelly um, and she's explaining to Casey that the immunity is limited to the job, girl. So if you step outside the role by advising police in the investigative phase of a criminal case, you step outside, babe. You're not immune anymore. So she should not have been playing cops and robbers with Elliot, she says. I mean, let's watch them have sex, please. Um, I feel like <laughs> Donnelly and Stabler, please. He asks <laughs> if they have a case and Donnelly says the suit has merit and they need to get themselves a lawyer today. Stabler was like, well, the city represents cops and she's like, uh, you trust a civil servant to save your house and your pension? Novak's asks, like, what choice do they have? And I'm getting excited. I wonder who it's gonna be. Okay, so Peggy wasn't kidding. Patty's lawyer is Granger. But like, that's a extremely high-powered lawyer. Oh, yeah. He does like the high, you know, in law, loss, right? Is like Zapata, he does the yeah. biggest drug no, lords. No, is that him? Does he Does he do Zapata? He sure does. Yeah, and he just has like, I don't know, to me, he's like from a white shoe law firm, top of the top, like they must be, He's like a know, thousand I, an hour vibe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'm not saying you can't be like a rich person with 11, but with like 11 kids in Manhattan, it just seems like a wild connection to be able to afford this lawyer. I wrote, um, and then for those who don't know, Granger is in real life married to Cindy Lauper, Mr. Cindy Lauper. He's expensive, no morals, rich, evil hair. And he is tap dancing in his opening statement, having a blast. He makes a good point. This guy has committed no crimes. He truly has done nothing wrong and they've done all of these behind the alley things to go to court. He makes very strong points, very theatrical. He makes fists in the air. There's been a lot of manipulations. I do believe that he sucks, but they need the evidence. Where is the body? <laughs> and they have five witnesses to you know, back all this up. And the judge is a severe type of classic down-to-business type of woman as well. Patty looks smug. Peggy looks serious as ever. They're suing them for cash money, honey, and now it's Judith Light's turn to tap dance. She is representing Casey and Elliot. So she gets up and she says that Elliot has a closure rate of 97%. LOL. She says that he's decorated and dedicated. Casey is a babe and has a 71% conviction rate and the national average is 44%. Awards, medals, accommodations, commendations, and lots of letters from victims, but none of that matters because this dude wants to go after their reputation and he is a liar, a violent man, a batterer. I don't believe a word he says and by the time we're through here, neither will you. Yes, bitch, get him. I loved her performance 
moments here. It was like, because Granger did so good. I was like, what's Judy going to do? And she <laughs> did it. And he's on the stand. His body language is like too relaxed for my liking. Um, that He should be sitting more professionally. Uh, he has <laughs> no criminal record or... Um, how is that possible? This is like a guy that beats the shit out of his girlfriend. I just don't get how this man would have like... No criminal record. Well, if Granger's been his fucking lawyer. But yeah, no yeah, arrests, no nothing. He's never even been questioned by the police, he says. He doesn't drink because his dad was a drunk. He promised his mother he would do better. And then, you know, the mom is shamed for drinking and smoking weed. There's an objection. It is sustained. Nothing further. Judy stands up. Congratulations on keeping your record clean. I'm sure you'll agree you just haven't been caught. And the judge is like, Elizabeth, you know better. And I'm like, okay, I love, you know, I want these judges out for wine. <laughs> So then she's like, fine, if you're such a perfect father, then explain to this court why you've never paid child support. He quickly has an answer that Laura never wanted him to. Then he says that Laura brought Kendall to visit him behind Dan's back. And she's like, do you have proof? And he goes, I didn't know I needed any. This guy's smooth. And this is a well-written piece of television. And she continues, you didn't know you were a father? Laura was so terrified she hid, hid Kendall from you. The first time you, you held him was when you stole him from his crib. And then he pulls out the sonogram from his pocket and goes, I've been with this baby since day one. And then, you know, the camera goes to Elliot's face while he's talking and it's it's his thinking face. They're zeroing in. It's really intense music. And Donnelly is like, this is a really improper way to introduce evidence. This is not cool. My experts need to look at that photo. Next thing we do is jump to Stabler on the steps of a fresh, crisp morning as Patty is getting the paper. And he's like, oh, big mistake. You're an idiot. He goes, hell of a nerve, but not a lot of brains. Um, but he does get to arrest him and Stabler seems confident. Granger stands up and screams, this is harassment down in interrogation. And then a threat about, I'll have both of your jobs. Casey says, I don't think so. Stabler then starts unpacking the box and explaining how it's stuff from the alley behind the apartment. So then it's story time. And they're like, you grab the stuff, the bag broke, spilled all the way down. You could only grab what you could. And then they're like, well, do you have proof? And then they're like, well, we have your fingerprints. We, um, so they say that they have fingerprints off of the second sonogram that was found in the trash. So basically, like, this baby bag exploded. He wanted to grab something, so he ripped the sonogram in half, grabbed one end, and the second end that he left behind, he left with a fingerprint. And Granger's like, um, okay, uh, let's make a deal. <laughs> so Casey's like, well, obviously, we'll start with the civil suits. They're dropped. You're also going to give up your parental rights, correct? And I'll bring it down from kidnapping one to custodial interference. That's an E felony. So only between one and a half to three years. Sabler says, beats life. He agrees. And he's taking the deal. So Sabler then asks, how'd you find out about Kendall? And he says, my mother. Uh, Laura was on the street with the boy. And the mom said that the boy looked just like me as a baby. So he knew it was mine. She knew it was mine. And she wouldn't stop bothering him. And it was, and she always wanted a grandson. And it's like, Aren't there 10 other sons? Yeah, you had 11 kids and you want your beater loser husband, uh, son to have the babies? Jesus. So she wanted a grandson so bad that, you know, she said she'd pay for everything and buy him a new car. So he didn't even care about this kid. He, she just, he just wanted a car. He did it for a car. Um, Casey and uh, Stabler Rare walking off being like, oh my God, the bluff, it worked. I can't believe the bluff worked. So they had no finger. Oh, wow. And it worked for me too. I totally forgot this part. I fell for it hardcore. There were no fingerprints. And Lunky, we're all lucky Granger didn't ask 
tests uh, to see proof. So maybe he's not as good of a lawyer as he thinks he is. Kozlowski's there like, oh my God, I can really take him home. He's so excited. He's going to meetings, no gambling, no drinking for a whole week. And he has a clean apartment. He's so happy to be a dad. Um, But like back to your original question, are the drug dealers just letting him live his life as a single dad now? Like- I don't know about that. Like, he owed a lot of money. And the other thing is... Well, maybe the cops would know that it's them if something happened and it's not worth it to them since the cops let them go. Maybe. They're all like, let's just call it a wash. I don't know. The the gamble... Like, they're still going to give the... I don't know. The other thing is, is like, I don't think there's a world where they would give the kid back to Kozlowski either. Like, I think they would search for family members of hers or family members of his that aren't bad. Like her parents. Like one of his 10 siblings has to be a good person. Yeah. I think they would go blood over this guy who's not blood related to the kid because he never formally adopted him. Yeah. We've talked about this before. But maybe Um, it's because they were fighting for custody. Maybe he did have partial visitation or something. I don't know. Yeah. I have no. You are right. You're, yeah. I don't know. I just like to point out these little weird things, well, but still, I do well, like that they're right. starting over in the show. There's still going to be a formal hearing, so it could, yeah. you know, but Patty will be out of his life forever. Maybe they have to do it for Patty to be out because Patty is such a violent guy. But even like the mom could petition for rights and she would get rights over Kozlowski. No, because then she couldn't guarantee that Patty wouldn't see the baby. Like they couldn't, you know, like she would yeah. let Patty. And she did aid the kidnapped. If she, yes, if she was officially charged for like aiding in the kidnapping, but if she didn't have anything to do with it, but she definitely did. She definitely helped. That kid would have had diaper rash for sure if it was just Patty. Um, But go on, go on. No, so he thanks them and leaves. Melinda walks in and apologizes uh, for the new tech expedition getting them in trouble. And they're like, who cares? It's all the case. That's all that matters. Melinda's like, yeah, it probably won't be around for long. And Sabre's like, yep, let's use it while we still can. And Melinda's like, yeah, your partner already has. Um, I actually have results. She asked me to run. Can you please give them to her? He agrees. He walks it over to Benson, who's still at her desk. She congratulates him on closing the patty case. He hands over the document, but he's like, you had a case? Like, what'd you do kinship and analysis for. She's like, oh yeah, cold case. She opens it up. He's like, you're working, you're you're not working on any cold cases. What is this for? She breathes in. He asks again, whose DNA did you have tested, Liv? She says, mine. I have a brother. End of the episode. Dun, dun. Which, by the way, Melinda is incorrect. They are still using that kind of DNA analysis, and I believe that's how they caught the Golden State Killer. So, like, we're still using that. I don't know if it's like, if it holds up, but it must. Um, but I like what she you. said. It's not like um, that's it. It's an investigative yeah. tool. Yes. Yes, for sure. Yeah, like it's not like this. It's not like DNA as definitive as DNA, but then you can find someone, make connections other ways. But I wonder if there's like laws around that. But anyway, the real life case to this is extremely close. So grab a little popcorn and come right back or don't go anywhere. I don't know what I'm trying to say. We'll be right back with The Real Case.
Listen, we're all SVU fans. We love a family drama. We love a mystery to solve. And you got to get hooked into a story with the details. You need the visuals. You need the storylines with the twists and the turns. And that is what June's Journey has and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young girl on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murderer. Dun, 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 dun. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. The game is filled with all these beautiful detailed scenes from the 20s, like lavish estates and gardens. And of course, little hidden clues are everywhere. There's twists, turns, catchy tunes. It all takes you deeper into this storyline. And if you play well enough, you can make it into the detective club. And there you can chat with other players and even compete with or against them, which is pretty exciting. And you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. And can you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. Okay, love that. And guess what? It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Okay, we are back with a case that I remember happening when it happened. This is the story of Melinda Duckett, who was a young woman. Um, She was actually born in Korea, but adopted by a U.S. family and raised in um, like sort of way upstate New York by like the Canadian border until she was 17. And then she moved to Florida to live with her grandparents. They don't, it's very, I read a lot of articles. It's very unclear why, but she did. So she goes down there. I think she finishes high school down there and she meets Joshua Duckett, Josh Duckett in high school in Florida. She gets pregnant at the end of her senior year. She gives birth to a baby boy named Trenton right after they graduate in July of 04. The Florida Department of Children and Families had a long list of incidents between these parents. So they're like 18-year-old parents. They're fighting with each other all the time. They're constantly making leveling accusations at each other. A lot of times stuff was unsubstantiated. DCF reported that Melinda also had like engaged in self-harm and had scars from cutting. There was something also in the report saying that she is also alleged to squeeze Trenton so tight that he sometimes screams, which is not great. Um, But other allegations from Josh are that she dangled him over water as a threat to him or held a knife up to him and threatened to kill him. But later, Josh admitted to inventing some of these allegations at his mother's request who wanted custody of her grandson. I was reading a bunch of stuff on Reddit and stuff that's not necessarily like great sources, but there was some speculation that Josh didn't really even want to be a dad. He was 18 years old when the kid was born and that he wasn't really around that much and that it was the mom that really wanted him to fight to get Trenton to get custody. So where is Josh's dad, you might wonder? Just on death row for raping, strangling, and drowning an 11-year-old girl. So that's a completely separate case. Oh my God. I found that out like towards the end of my research. And I was like, what the fuck? Like crazy. But also just in a more casual sense, this like wanting to be a grandparent. It's like, get over it. Yeah. Um, Kids get to become parents or not on their own will. This whole thing of, we want to be grandparents. It's kind of sickening. I really am against it. It's like not, yeah, it's like not something I think about or care about really. I mean, I obviously would, it would be nice when I'm older, I guess, but like the obsession is crazy. So 
A review by DCF agents found there were no concerns for the boy's safety and that the case did not meet, that the case, quote, does not meet high-risk criteria. So DCF was very involved in their lives. There's like a long report. I linked to the report in my sources or to a couple pages of the report that I could find. And it seems like the two of them are using DCS, DC, sorry, it's DCFS in, in LA, but it, DCF as like a um, weapon against each other. So in April of 05, she, he had her committed involuntarily under Florida's Baker Act, which allows authorities to commit people for up to 36 hours for psychological evaluations if they appear to be a danger to themselves or others. And uh, the report concluded that there was no psychological reason that would preclude Melinda from being a capable and loving parent. So this seems to be another like tactic from Josh and maybe his mom. It was probably due to an accusation that he possibly made up or who knows. They did have heated fights. It's possible she said things. And there was one point where they called a family friend who was a cop and they had her on speakerphone and she said something about ending it if he doesn't stop doing it, ending it. And they they thought that was like taking her own life, hurting the baby. And it's like, she could have been talking about ending the relationship. There's a, It's very vague what she was talking about. And so they were always trying to like trap her, it sounds like, in ways. But she did have some mental health issues. Um, but like, was she keeping the baby away from the grandma? Like, what was the grandma's issue? Well, they were sharing custody at some point, but I think they wanted to have full. I don't know. That's bullshit. <laughs> I know. Especially when it's like your son doesn't seem like he really wants to. Oh, and another thing I read about the son was he was like, I'm a spontaneous person and she just wants to have everything planned out every second. It's like, that's kind of what you have to do when you have a kid and you're sharing the kid with another person. It's all about scheduling and like, you can't just be like, oh, sweet, you want the kid tomorrow? Cool. You know, that's like, sorry, bro. You're like, surfer lifestyle is not going to work for this, uh, this arrangement. So... After three months of multiple complaints and of abuse, Josh and Melinda get married in July of 05. Not a great idea. Their relationship is obviously rough. They break up and they reunite all the time. And then Melinda finally files for divorce in 2006. The divorce is not good, of course. Trenton is going between fighting parents. And at one point, he's in foster care as well. So like there's a point where I can't tell if it's like when they had her Baker acted that he had to go into foster care. But he went into foster care, I believe, just for a few weeks and she got custody back of him. Uh, and then Josh kept wanting custody, but they the courts kept claiming that he didn't fulfill all the requirements like um, going to counseling. And he's like, it's hundreds of dollars to go to this counseling, which I will side with him on that. Like for the court to require you all of this counseling that you need to see your kid and then not provide the counseling for you seems crazy to me. You shouldn't have to pay to get your kids back. That seems like it's aimed towards people punishing people from low income. And I don't really love that. So, but he should be dedicated to going and getting the counseling. You know, he should be like, his time is what he can give. So August 27 of 2006. So at this point, Melinda and Josh are 20. Melinda puts Trenton to bed at 6.30 p.m. at their home in Leesburg, Florida, which is 45 minutes outside of Orlando, Lisa's future hometown. Um, <laughs> a few minutes before seven, she checked on him and he was fast asleep. Then much like in the, in the show, she says two friends came over to watch the 1998 Guy Ritchie film Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, which I've never seen. I don't know if you have. At nine o'clock when the movie was over, Melinda tells police she goes to check on Trenton in his bedroom, just like in the show. He's gone and there's a cut in the window screen above his crib. 
According to police, she was considered the prime suspect because they found some of Trenton's toys and a sonogram in the trash of her apartment complex. So that's right from the episode. Yeah. And they didn't arrest her immediately because they thought she would lead them to the boy eventually. So it was also very similar to what happened in the show where she spent the full day, she said, shopping with her son but no, there's no footage of her anywhere with the kid. There's no, like, there's a gas receipt, but, like, nobody saw the kid. Like, so nobody really knows at one point in the day he might have gone missing because she's the only one. The friends never saw the kid. At one point, she said they were going to go look for some kind of forest, like the Ocala Forest or something, but then they got lost and didn't go. So police were checking that forest. They were checking all kinds of places looking for this kid everywhere. And a few days, I just read this and thought this was kind of interesting. Like a few days after Trenton disappeared, Melinda's grandfather, who she lived with, who she had lived with down in Florida, Bill Eubanks said he held her hands in his hands and said, I want you to look me in the eye. Do you know where Trenton is? And she said, Poppy, I don't know where Trenton is. And he said he believed her and that she had never lied to him before. So days later, just like in the show, Duckett is interviewed about Trenton's disappearance by Nancy Grace for a pre-taped segment that would air on the September 8th, 2006 episode of her show on CNN. Or it's headline news. It was HLN or CNN. I don't know what it was at the time. During the interview, Nancy Grace accused Duckett of hiding something because she refused to take a polygraph, which her divorce attorney advised her not to do because polygraphs are junk science. Like, they're not admissible anyway. And I guess she was vague in answering some of her questions about, like, where they were that day. And then she tripped up on basic points like where they were shopping, the day disappeared. And so by the end of the interview, Nancy Grace was, like, pounding on her desk going, where were you? Why aren't you telling us where you were that day? And so she got this woman like pretty upset. And the day after the taping of the show, hours before it was supposed to air on television, Duckett wrote a two-page letter addressed to the public. And it said it was all about how much she loved Trenton and how sad and angry she was over being ridiculed and facing all this quote-unquote ridicule and criticism. She wrote that the letter was, quote, a last-minute idea, but I have felt myself sinking after one-week mark of Trent being gone. I love him dearly and he is all I was breathing for. He was and always will be my essence. And as he grows, I want him to know that. And then she continues, I only wish you do not push anyone else in the letter. So in the letter, she's talking about him like he's alive. Like she's saying, as he grows, I want him to know how much I love him. She left the letter on the dashboard of her car, went into her grandparents' house, took a shotgun out of her dad's uh, grandfather's closet or out of her grandfather's wherever he keeps the shotguns and then went into a closet and shot herself in the closet. And she was 20 years old and it's really horrible. And her family blamed her death on all the media coverage, specifically Nancy Grace. They filed a wrongful death lawsuit against her. They accused her of inflicting emotional distress on Melinda. And Nancy Grace told Good Morning America that, quote, if anything, I would suggest that guilt made her commit suicide. To suggest that a 15 or 20 minute interview can cause someone to commit suicide is focusing on the wrong thing, end quote. She said that while she sympathized with the family, she knew from her own experience as a victim of crime that people always look for somebody else to blame. And that's why the family was coming after her with this suit. On November 8th of 2010, which is 
four years later, um, a month before the jury trial was scheduled to start, Nancy Grace reached a settlement with Melinda Duckett's estate, and it was to create a $200,000 trust fund dedicated to finding Trenton. And somebody named J. Paul Durat Deratani, a lawyer representing Duckett's family, said in a statement to the AP, after four, quote, after four years of litigation and extensive discovery, the parties now agree that Nancy Grace, the producers of her program and CNN, engaged in no intentional wrongdoing in the course of dedicating a program to finding the missing toddler as alleged in the lawsuit, end quote. And the sad thing is, is that Trenton has never been found. And there have been, the this uh, Center for Missing and Exploited Children has released the uh, footage like of what he would look like. He was, would be about 19 now, I think. And yeah, he's never been found. And it's just wild because the cops really just discounted that it could be a stranger kidnapping. And I know that stranger kidnappings don't happen a lot, but they do happen. And they, they, I guess I looked up the forensics that with the forensics, they could never tell whether the screen was cut from inside the house or outside the house. Unfortunately, they didn't get like the hair analysis that they got in the ep episode of SVU where someone bumped their head. Like, so there's just, this kid disappeared without a trace. It's really sad. And his mom did take her own life, which is also sad. So it's a real tragedy. It's just a very chaotic story from the start. I know. And Nancy Grace being involved. It was funny because I was going back and reading old articles on like New York Times and Washington Post and stuff. And like in the comments, all the comments are from 2006, you know? And they're just like, Nancy Grace is what's wrong with journalism. And then other people are like, no, she's asking the tough questions. And they're like, no wonder we're so divided as a nation. And I'm like, God, we're, we were divided back then. We're so divided now. Well, I mean, she is a dumb bitch to me, but like no worse than Pierce Morgan, you know what I mean? Yeah. She's like, I feel all the dude newscaster guys are so much worse. So I wonder how much of her annoyingness is because she's a woman versus like this kind of behavior. Yeah. Well, you could definitely tell what SVU thought of Nancy Grace with this episode because <laughs> they call Cindy Marino the devil, I feel like, multiple times. Because um, there's one interview with Elizabeth Smart where Elizabeth Smart hates Nancy Grace. Yeah. I don't think she's the one that should be doing the compassionate interviews. No, I think she's it. the, like, she's the one that's doing the, like, why isn't anybody looking at that? Like, I, I I do respect if she's given light to cases that wouldn't have been covered, maybe, but I don't think you need to scream at a mom. The kid's been gone for a week. There's truly no proof she did anything to him. She's 20 years old, uh, essentially a teen mom, and they're really, I don't know, I don't know. It's just sad. It is sad. Sad all around. But we're going to pick it back up with really one of the happiest interviews we've done in a long time with a very fun person. So don't go anywhere. Today's guest has been a fixture on sitcoms for the past 20 years. You guys know her from starring roles on The Jim Gaffigan Show, Good Morning Miami, and How I Met Your Mother. You may also recognize her from the recent Sister Swap movies on Hallmark, but you know her today as tortured mother of a kidnapped baby, Laura Kozlowski. Please enjoy our delightful chat with Ashley Williams. Thank you so much for doing this. I know we had like Mark, our buddy Mark Feuerstein was like stalking you on our behalf. And I was like, 
like, I was like, did you ask her? He's like, I asked her. I was like, we well, yeah, ask her one more time. So I'm really it's, glad. It was really fun. It's really fun for me because it felt like a little team of people was stalking me and I'm actually very into that. So <laughs> it may have just made me feel a little cooler and I just appreciate your, your part in that. <laughs> yeah, actually, this was what was so great about talking to Mark is the first time I, I know you did tons of acting before, but the first time I re- remember you coming on the scene for me was Good Morning Miami, that which I did watch. Job. I mean, I... Oh, well, okay. Listen, I, I was in like a soap opera in high school. Where we yeah, all? I saw that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that was my first job out of out of like theater school. Wow! And I saw you had a nonverbal role in the movie Indian Summer, which I am obsessed with. You and guys, I'm tr- I was trying to remember that movie and that part was so like. In hindsight, I cannot believe my parents let me do that. I played. <laughs> I played the camp slut. I was like eleven. Yeah. <laughs> My mom was like, God, this is a rocket. Yeah, literally your type, your name of your character is not just like a girl's name. It's like the girl's name. And then it says the camp's sure thing is what it says on the IMDb. <laughs> and I just love, I just love that my mother was like, we're so proud. We're so proud. <laughs> Amazing. Love that though, because I am obsessed with that movie. Um, so yeah, Good Morning Miami was like your first big thing. You and Mark got to play like opposite each other as like a will they, won't they, Jim and Pam ty- type of situation. Yeah. Right? Love yeah. that. It was an intense first job, you know? Yeah. It's like for we were sure. like on right after friends on Thursday nights and I was 22 years old. Like, you know? Crazy. Well, how did your like, how how did your whole, I mean, you were on a soap opera in high school. I know your sister is an actor as well. How did your whole like, acting journey begin? You saw your sister doing it. You wanted to do it. You guys both started at the same time. What was the the deal? No, basically my sister's seven years older than me. And I, to this day, basically just want to be her. Um, so <laughs> as a child, I followed her around and wore her clothes. Um, and then when she became an actress, I was like, I want to do that too. But it was also really interesting. Like we grew up, my my dad was a writer and we grew up like very lower middle class. And my sister, um, we had a next door neighbor who was on Another World, um, uh, which was a soap opera that's long gone. But uh, my sister was like, she was the kind of pretty where like people would stop us on the street and be like, can I take a picture of your, you know, of your kid? And I was the like younger, like, <laughs> like a little bit like hyper freaky, strange, not, not perfectly. Like my sister's features are teeny. Like she just is like, a, she's just be- like a model. She's beautiful. So, but this next door neighbor said, you got to get this, you know, Kim into acting. And she booked a national dairy commercial and made like four times what my parents made in a year from that one day of work. And they were like, you all have to do this. So my mom, my mom, (laughs) (laughs) my mom brought me and my brother and we all got headshots and we started auditioning and we started like getting commercials, you know? And then like our whole lives changed. We ended up paying for college from that. It was, it was actually like a very smart move, but consequently, Suddenly I'm, you know, in my mid forties and one of my first credits is like camp slut. Cause my mom was like, go, go. <laughs> run like the wind. Just do it. It doesn't matter. <laughs> um, you know, because you guys were young when you started, did your parents have to be on set? And what was their vibe when you were a okay. kid with them on okay, set? Okay, so here's where it gets really weird. <laughs> so, my parents came when we would do like commercials and stuff. 
Um, and then my mom came the first couple of days I worked on As the World Turns, my soap opera, but she had a job. Like my parents had jobs, right? So basically I became friends with the principal of my, of my like middle school and high school. And I, I just said to him, listen, I am fine. I, if, if my GPA falls below a certain amount, let's get a whole host of tutors and do the whole SAG thing. Now, listen, today this would never happen. But at the time... He was like, all right. So I had to stay on the high honor roll and I had to get above like 1100 or something on my SATs. And then I, nobody bothered me about the escort. Like he signed everything. Wow. It was nuts. Nuts. And you just kind of like self-taught yourself? You just No, like- I went into school when I wasn't working, but I was a contract player. Ah. So I was, I was in school like maybe two days a week. And then the other days of the week, I would have like my textbooks and I had like um, a couple of my friends who would bring home copies of the homework and drop it off at my house or my parents would go pick it up and I would do all my homework. And, you know, I, that was where I realized I was like wow. a crazy work, work ethic genius person, which is, yeah, wow. I'm not lucky, particularly like, like academia smart, but I know how to get work done. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so I was handing in. Things. I think that's how I am. <laughs> yeah, I was handing in papers that were a lot of like regurgitation, and I was like always like a solid, solid <laughs> yeah. like B minus student. And then I would write like totally. an amazing paper about you know the Gettysburg Address, and then it would like my <laughs> it would go up a little bit. So I was like skin of my teeth. I made it. So your principal wow. had your back. He did. He was amazing. Uh, Dr. Rooney was his name. I don't. I should find out where he is today. He's probably still back there. <laughs> uh, careful going down. Careful going down that. I've looked up some of my old teachers. They're no longer oh, with us. That is um, so sad. <laughs> I'm always like, what happened to my teacher I loved? And you like yeah. get their obituary. But I hope Dr. Rooney is still I kicking hope so it. Too. So. All, then all this time goes by. You 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 do you do. Um, Good morning, Miami. And now you get this. What happens with the SVU? Do you just get offered this? What's going guys, on? Like, tell us the journey of the SVU. It was a freaking flat offer, which does not oh, happen to people wow. like me. <clears throat> it was <laughs> yeah, such a big deal. And here's the really weird thing: my husband was running the New York Marathon the week that I was shooting. SVU. And he was like, you have to take this because then I don't have to pay for a hotel room. (laughs) (laughs) So, and also it's longer. I wasn't getting, you know, it's a big deal. So the whole time I was there, like my husband was like running and like icing his thighs and, you know, getting gear and stuff like that. And then he ran it like one of the mornings that I was shooting. Oh no, it was because he ran it on like a Sunday, but it was like over the weekend, you know. And so... Tell us how it was. Like, what was the set like? Did Were you a fan of the show going into it? Like, how did you, like, what was the deal? I mean, it's sort of, you know, I I was, I'm definitely not a person that's seen every episode of Law & Order, but but I have gone through phases in my life, like Law & Order phases in my life. So I definitely knew the form. I knew the medium. I knew the dun-dun, you know. uh, (laughs) I was into all of that. And more than anything else, it just felt like such a cool rite of passage as an actor to get asked because 
And still to this day, like I actually rewatched the episode last night in preparation for our interview. And the cast of, uh, uh, I mean, of of all episodes, but my episode in particular is so astounding. Marianne Seldes. I mean, just the... The, the pure, I mean, Pablo, so Pablo Schreiber, and then here's the crazy thing is I have a connection to so many of the people from that episode. Now, Pablo Schreiber went to college with my husband. I directed a movie two years ago for Lifetime and Diane Neal is my lead and Tamara Tooney is my, is my number three on that movie. So I've directed- Oh, wait. Did you know this? Yes. You direct, you direct, wait, 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 what was it, it called again? We did a again? live. We watched wait. it. Circle of Betrayal or no, something? you guys saw that movie? Yes, yes, because, oh my gosh, yes, Diane, Diane told Neal us. did a live with us after the movie. So Diane told us about you directing this interview. This is all coming back to me. I cannot believe I didn't remember this when I was prepping the questions for this. But like, Diane was like, oh, and it's directed by Ashley Williams and she's amazing. It's the one where she's like the psycho best friend, right? And like, and her, like, she maybe kills her friend's husband. So <laughs> we- I saw, I directed the movie and I don't we, know. <laughs> we had just, we had just started our podcast and we were like, let's do something fun with that. And her, like Diane's people gave us a like a pre screener of the movie. So we watched it. And then like right after it aired, we did a live with Diane and she came on and like answered questions and we talked about it because she's been on our pod and is like a great supporter of our podcast. And we love her. That is so funny. We've seen it, baby. Like my dad didn't watch (laughs) that movie. Like (laughs) I saw that movie. It's amazing. Oh, that was my directorial debut. Oh, we we've seen it. We saw because we were like, of course we have to watch it. Tamara Tooney and Diane Neal, like we got the whole fam. Yeah, Yeah. we shot that movie. So we got shut down in the middle of the pan, or right when the pandemic started, we got shut down. And then two months later, we picked up. We were one of the first productions back in Vancouver. Um, so the, the fact that we pulled it off was kind of a miracle. It was amazing. Wait, so do you have other connections to other actors in this episode besides that those three? Okay, wait. Wait, I made a list. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, first of all... <clears throat> oh, yes. Okay, here's another crazy one. I went to college with Amber Gray, who's the movie theater girl from the episode. She's got the curly oh, hair. Oh, the one who's like, I don't, I don't want to see babies. I don't want to hear them you or guys, see them. That's like Amber Gray. <laughs> she has a Tony... For um, you know the Orpheus and Eurydice musical. Oh, oh, Hades Town. She has a Tony, and I went to college with her. Wow, I went to college with Amber Gray. Oh yeah, she plays Persephone. Thank you. I can't believe I didn't put that together. Wow, wow. Um, So that was amazing. Okay, who else? Um, Kathleen, uh, is it Shalafant? Who's the judge? She and I did a play together. Um, oh, here's another really fun one that I thought you guys would appreciate. So my sister was in Father of the Bride with B.D. Wong. Yes. And when I and when I was there, uh, in like you know shooting the episode, they gave me B.D. Wong's dressing room. And <laughs> I was so I was 11 when my sister shot Father of the Bride, and remember that I was her psychotic stalker fan. Like my own big sister, I was her number one fan. Like I saw Father of the Bride. I used to just watch it every day after school, just to sort of, it was like (laughs) church for me, right? Like, it's like, imagine if your sister is like Julia Roberts. 
like you just, you know. Yeah. It's also was just such a big movie at that time. Like I'm your age and like, I feel like we just were all obsessed with Father of the Bride and she is like this star of this movie and you're like, wow. Like, I don't know. I but just... like, imagine being her little sister and the like idea of like, we were in the same womb. <laughs> I could have been her. Yeah. She could have been me. Like, she's basically <laughs> me, you know? Like, just I'm absolutely so obsessed funny. with her. So, um, so anyway, I met B.D. Wong when I was 11, and I went and forced her to make me a extra in the movie. And so when I was there, I left B.D. Wong, a le- like, I wrote him a letter. Oh, cute. Actually, William. I was 11 years old when I met you and I like wrote him this whole letter and I never heard from him. I gave him my phone number. <laughs> he never, he never. I bet he thought it was cute. I'm I bet he was sure just was busy. So busy. <laughs> so, he's probably really moved, you know, <laughs> overwhelmed. So this is a very Christopher Maloney heavy movie with you. Like he clearly, I mean, movie episode. This episode is very heavy with you and Christopher Maloney. How was working with him? I think I caught him right at, at like <laughs> a heavily fatigued with the genre moment. You know, he was all business. He was, I felt like, you know, kind of just like, let's just, let's go, let's go, let's get through this, you know? Um, yeah. And, uh, so, but I also, I don't know what it's like to, you know, sh- to do the same thing over and over and over again for so many years in a row. I have, I've, I've never been that successful. <laughs> so, you know, I had empathy. Yeah, no, it was season eight. <laughs> it was season eight. He had been doing it for a while. Um, yeah. But what about when he's, what about when he's taking you off of the fan and like your little ragdoll body is, is in his hands? You guys didn't bond? First of all, thank you for calling me little. Um, <laughs> second of all, I mean, I do remember it it, it being very difficult to because he was like right here. He was like, and I had to be like, <laughs> you know, like dead, dead yeah. body, dead face. You guys are dancing yeah, cheek to he cheek was for right sure. On me, I I remember consciously wanting to smell him, but my character's not breathing, so I had to be like, "Don't <laughs> smell Christopher Maloney right now. Don't smell him because you're not allowed to breathe because you're dead." Wow. Um. But yeah, they, they we spent a lot of time on that like harness situation. Yeah, because we talked to another person on our podcast who met the same end as your character, and she told us about it's like a full harness that keeps you up, and like it seems like it was a hardcore. Lot. It was like it went. They had me in that big sweatshirt because it it went like around. I can't really remember, but I remember there being like hardcore hard plastic things because it hooked into the back. You know, um, mm-hmm. and it was the the I remember the stunt coordinator had to build it, um, and it was wow. complicated. We had to have like a lot of fittings, and you know, it was this oh was my like gosh. such a small moment, but I loved your acting when like Stabler's talking to you, and you're like, "Well, why do I have to do this?" And he's like, "A mother actually worried about her kid would let you," and then you kind of just have this face that I really love. You know. Thank like you a great for moment. saying that. Something that bothered me about my own acting as I watched it last night was that I had all these copious tears and I just, I never wiped them. Like who cries that hard <laughs> and doesn't wipe their face? But I think somebody had told me, if you have achieved tears, 
don't wipe them away because then the audience won't know that you were actually crying. So I think I remember like producing copious emotional tears and not allowing myself to wipe them off. And in hindsight, I was furious with myself for not wiping them because you don't, (laughs) nobody does that. People cry and wipe the whole time, you know? Yeah. The tears just sat on my face and rolled and I didn't touch them. But not if you're like in in true agony. I think you might not be thinking about that. Because I'm thinking about when kids really cry, they don't wipe it around. Thank you for justifying that terrible choice I made. Um, <laughs> you're right. Because kids terrible. are like unself. So maybe she's like unselfconscious. Yeah. yeah. She's just like so in. I'm buying it. Sad. I'm buying it. She's sad. <laughs> um, Wait, is your husband an actor as well? No, he's um, a reformed actor. He's a producer. Uh, he got an okay. actual okay. real job. Yeah. And he does your stuff. Yeah. Well, when you I guys can, like, work together. Him, when I can rope him into it. Yeah. Well, that's so, and it's Sister Swap. So you work with your family often. Well, I mean, Sister Swap was the first time I worked with my sister. Um, did you love it? And just for our listeners, just for our listeners, Sister Swap are these Hallmark movies that you and your sister do together. And what's the premise that you guys switch lives or you don't look that much alike that it's like, it's not like a twin swap, but like, it's like a wife swap. Yeah, well, yeah, we definitely made that joke. Um, Well, the idea is it's two movies, okay? And we are working on more, but we shot two movies and uh, it's City Mouse, Country Mouse who basically switch. Right. Oh, got so it. we, I live in her house and do her thing, and she lives, you know, in in mine, and we sort of switch. Which um, mouse are you? I'm a I'm country mouse goes to the city. Okay. Um, and she comes home because I take yeah. So um, but it was really cool because those movies were were really outside the box for Hallmark, you know. Um, well, especially at the time. Now they're kind of like doing all kinds of fun stuff, but. Um, this was a couple of years ago and it was really kind of like an innovative idea. And then what was really fun was that Dan Harmon, the comedy writer, got drunk this past Christmas and happened upon them and became obsessed <laughs> with the idea of two movies um that were shot that were cross-boarded. So we we shot two movies, but a lot of the scenes were in common, but shot in a different way. And he thought that was brilliant. And then repeatedly Instagram posted about it and it actually forced Hallmark to re-air both movies back to back um, to great rating <laughs> success because of Dan Harmon. So I am like actively speaking of stalking, trying to get him to collaborate with me on the next sister movie. So if you Wait, know I him, love that. I love this. <laughs> it's so good, right? That's and it like so it was funny. it was picked up by like BuzzFeed and I did an interview with the Daily Beast and you know everybody was like cuz at the time it sort of like went a little bit under the radar but when Dan Harmon had too much eggnog it had this whole resurgence <laughs> this past year. I was really grateful. I love that. That's really fun. Wow. And did your um little sister heart just fill with joy getting to work with your sister? You guys, my sister is like, she's legit the coolest to this day, to this day. She's just amazing. So, you know, getting to do scenes with her and like, I just, you know, it was heaven. I would do it again in a heartbeat. I feel like there's no, like, I know other sisters that are actors and it does not turn out like this. (laughs) Like, they are like so competitive and don't understand each other and like. 
It's really nice. I think the dynamic with us is very clear, which is like, there's no competing with her because she's so cool. So that's all that has to happen is I just love on her. And she, thank God, is incredibly generous and patient with me. (laughs) So it really works out. But there's a clear leader between the two of us. (laughs) I wanted to ask you also about the the Make Her Mark program that it, I think you started or founded or how, how, tell me about that. Thank you so much for asking about this. This is the thing I'm the most excited about. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've been working for the Hallmark Channel for a couple of years. And you know, one of my favorite things other than sort of just the feel good nature of the material is that it's always about these sort of female forward characters who are not interested in love. And then, you know, against even their own best instincts, they sort of fall in love. And but it's about it's it's these female centered stories. And I realized after like my fifth or sixth Hallmark movie, I'm like, all of these are directed by men. You know, what, what is going on? And, um, so, you know, I did some research, um, and I realized that out of a hundred movies that Hallmark makes a year, a (laughs) hundred that year that I realized this only eight of them were directed by women. So, you know, I sort of started to do some digging and, uh, you know, the truth is these movies are shot for so little money and you can't, you need, you need a veteran director. Right. You need somebody that everybody trusts, that knows how to run a crew, that can shoot a full length feature in 15 days for pretty low budget, you know? And, um, and there just aren't that many women trained in that. Right. You know, I went to, to our sort of higher ups and they said, well, you know, can you do some more research and come back to us? So then I, I started meeting with the heads of all the diversity and inclusion programs in our industry and um, forcing them to give me advice about how to start a women's directing program at Hallmark. And I got amazing advice and have, you know, kind of like a little collection of very wise individuals helping me. And finally, you know, Hallmark was on board. We figured out how to make it pay for itself because um, basically the, 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 you know, the, the, what makes our program different than others is that we employ our women. So we train them. Um, so we, we find a mentee who is somebody who has some experience in directing, but would never probably get her own movie at this point. Um, and then we give her, we pair her with a directing mentor. Okay. For all of prep, all of shooting and for as much of post as is possible, she shadows that directing mentor for the entire movie. And then they switch. And that mentor becomes her creative producer. And she has her directorial debut. So not only are we employing her, but we're also making sure that there's somebody there helping her, advocating for her, making sure that she absolutely nails it so that she can get hired in the future. So um, it's called Make Her Mark. And we have our very first mentee, Crystal Lowe, who's an incredible director. She's directed a bunch of short films. She's been pounding the pavement as a director for 15 years, writing, applying to programs, shadowing, working. No one trusted her with a movie, right? Because she's new. So um, she's on set right now with uh, Jessica Harmon, who's on her 13th Hallmark movie that she's directing in the last two years. And uh, she's shadowing um, Jessica. And then Jessica is going to become her creative producer for Crystal's directorial debut this year. So a female director is born. Thank you very much. And we're going to be doing two more this year. So that's three in our pilot program. And in success, I am going to 
not have it stop at at directors. I want to do it for writers, producers, DOPs. Um, I think, you know, given the just the sheer quantity of shooting that Hallmark does, I think there's no reason why we can't have a, a, a shadow slot on every Hallmark movie to create, um, you know, really a training ground for women behind the camera. Well, I love that it's not just shadow, but then they get an opportunity to immediately use all of these skills. That's like so innovative. I love that. Thank you. Yeah, and they have someone that has their back so that they're not just like thrown into the deep end too. Like, I yeah. love that. What a great idea. Way Thank to you go. so much. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so I'm really cool. proud of it. Yeah, so go check out my Instagram page. We'll have more information about, you know, um, the rest of the year's mentees and then how to apply in the future. We're working on it. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, yeah totally. Well, we we'll shout this out on that. the pod. I'm so excited that Mark was not afraid to ask you a second time and that this all worked out. And it was so great to meet you. Hopefully we'll run into each other in Los Angeles. Yeah. Thank you so much, you guys. We've maybe never met such a positive person. <laughs> She's like the smiliest, most positive person. And there's, it's there, I don't see a seething anger underneath. Yeah. No, yeah. there's not like a fake like darkness. I don't, I don't sense that. She just seems like she loves her life, loves her sister, like... And there's not a Jesus freak underneath either. You know, yeah. there's not like a Lord light either. It's like, I mean, true. don't tell Hallmark that, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, she could just, she could like the Lord, but it's, that's not, that's not the kindness the either. defining, yeah. No, it's, yeah. it's just a kindness, you know, that, that I'm sensing. She could yeah. be, she could be doing what Paul Bettany did in that. <laughs> What does that mean when you're hitting yourself with the leather on your back? Oh, self-flagellation. Yeah, but what's that movie? It's the Da Vinci Leonardo. Code. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she could be doing that all night. <laughs> He's like a monk that like whips himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That really, that movie really had a hold on the culture for a couple of years. The book. I mean, yeah. I read the book too. Like, um, I like, <laughs> love the book. I loved the book, and everyone's like the book is terrible. Like, and I'm like, oh, I loved it. And it's like a huge bestseller. It was the 50 Shades of Grey of its time. I guess. Although I, I think Dan Brown's a better writer than the 50 Shades Lady, for sure. They both just seem sexy, dark, and yeah. whipping. A lot of whipping in, in both. Yeah. Whip, <laughs> whipping in sex. What did we learn here? What's our postmortem on this episode? I mean, as always, we're way too hard on mothers, S single mothers, new mothers. Like everybody, just fucking calm down. Let this woman help you find her son instead of I miss shaming her on television for smoking a little weed and having a charade party. I miss when the news was the news. Yeah, uh, when it wasn't just sensationalized wild behaviors. Oh, but speaking of this, I. I did not cut my cable, but I downgraded to this package where you can pick 15 channels and you get local channels too. So I can watch like the Oscars and whatever. What is this? This is what I want to get for my mother. What is this? It's Spectrum and it's called like something choice, my choice or something on Spectrum. So you get all the local channels and then you get to pick 15 cable channels. The problem is I don't know if there'll be Russian channels. Well, but no, like my dad has the Russian channels downstairs, but upstairs oh, okay. my mom needs... Like some cable. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. So I chose no Fox News and my it's just gonna be so great when my parents come to oh visit my and God. they try to flip it on. And it, yes. 
Because I read, I, I heard on this podcast that Fox News doesn't even make its money from advertising. Like the only people who fucking advertise on there are like my pillow and like really bad products anyway. They don't get blue chip advertising. Like BMW is not advertising on Fox News. They get uh, most of their money from people's cable fees, from carriage fees is what they're called. And when I heard this on a podcast, I was like, I'm paying to keep Fox News in business by having cable. So I like, I wanted to reduce my cable anyway and get my bill lowered. So here I am, not, no longer accessible in my home. I can't wait for your mom to have a little meltdown. A is that rude? Meltdown. Well, I have CNN and I think I have BBC and she can deal with that. I'm so excited. Yeah, I can't wait. I'm going to videotape it, I think. Um, I mean, no plans for her to come right now, but can't wait. <laughs> but also, grandmas, you can't just snatch... Like, this this narrative of gr- grandparents demanding grandchildren, that's out. Yes. It's out. Out. Yeah, godparents in demanding grandchildren out. Yes. It's That's... rude and weird and like adopt a foster kid. Be getting become Get a foster a dog. parent. Like, yeah, figure out a hobby. Like, yeah, it's so it's more of this like spreading your seed and your lineage and all this stuff that's like so bizarre. No, I've talked about this. My mom and I had this discussion. Your parents just want you to suffer the way they've suffered or <laughs> ex- or experience the joys they've experienced. But it's um so you can, they can relate. To, like, so you can experience what they've experienced. Yeah. Because you were a mean teen. And then when your kid's a mean teen, you can think of them when they're dead. That's, yeah. that's what being, that's what they really want. <laughs> they want when they're long gone for your teen to scream, I hate you to you and slam a door in your face. And for you to go, ugh. That's what I did to my mother. Now you know, yeah. And then that's that. So then when they're in their grave, they can go, that's that's what I lived for. Yeah, you're right. That's really the All circle right. of life. It's like, um, not revenge, but petty, petty understanding. Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not revenge. It's, um, yeah, it's hard to break out of the cycle of what you know. Like, everybody just thinks do it the way I did. Like, we do it the way I was did it. I mean, that's conservatism anyway. And now my parents don't get Fox News at my house anymore. So the cycle is broken. Yeah, um, don't you want them to visit now even faster than before? Yes. Yeah, I like don't even want my, I don't, I don't normally want my dad to even come visit, but I'm like, come now. You can come visit now. Like, I just want you to come. But let's get into this week's What Would Sister Peg Do? This is our weekly segment where we point you to an organization, a blog post, a podcast episode, an article, something to help you get more information about what we learned about in today's episode. And, you know, Laura Kozlowski's character had been the victim of domestic violence and it forced her into like a relationship with another guy who had like gambling problems. And, you know, I I just sort of saw the, the sort of... Uh, way that it was. And then the, the real life story had seemed like it had uh, it, at the very least emotional abuse going on in it. So I thought I would point you guys this week to an organization called LifeWire. Their mission is to end domestic violence and create a world where every person lives in a safe environment, free from oppression and with, op- with the opportunity to thrive. They provide paths to safer housing because domestic violence is a leading cause of homelessness among women and children in the U.S. And they're actively working to change systems that perpetuate racism and inequality, even within their own organization. So for more info on that, you can go to lifewire.org and that will be posted on the day that the episode is released on our stories and saved forever in a highlight on our Instagram called WWSPD2 because we're on our second batch of these now. 
on next week's episodes. Did you hear that? Plural. (laughs) It will be Lost Reputation and Above Suspicion. It's a double. um, And that's season 14, episodes one and two. Get your Peacock and Hulu on and join us next week. Thank you so much. Enjoy your lives. Bye. That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmesseduppod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at That's Messed Up Pod and on Twitter at Messed Up Pod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to our producer, Casey O'Brien. And to our mixer, John Bradley, and our guest booker, Patrick Kotner. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song and Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thank you to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstar, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Dun, dun! dun. <laughs> Follow That's Messed Up and SVU Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase That's Messed Up merch.